Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this Neuroscience CME webcast. This continuing education activity is co-sponsored by Indiana University School of Medicine and by CME Outfitters, LLC. This activity is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated. This activity is titled Epilepsy in the New Millennium, Emerging Treatments and Guidelines for Effective Diagnosis and Disease Management. Our distinguished faculty for this activity are Dr. Cynthia L. Hardin and Professor Michael R. Sperling. Dr. Hardin is Professor of Neurology, Clinical Educator Tract, and Director of the Epilepsy Division at the University of Miami's Miller School of Medicine in Miami, Florida. Dr. Hardin has disclosed that she received research support from Forest Laboratories Incorporated, GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer Incorporated, and UCB Pharma. She has received honoraria from GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer Incorporated, and UCB Pharma. Professor Sperling is the Baldwin Keyes Professor of Neurology and Director of the Jefferson Comprehensive Epilepsy Center at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Professor Sperling has disclosed that he has received honoraria for speaking engagements from GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer Incorporated, and UCB Pharma. He has received honoraria for consulting from Dynapone Sumitomo Pharma Company Limited and research support from H. Lundbeck AS, Medtronic Incorporated, Neuropace, Sepracor Incorporated, and UCB Pharma. Over the next hour, Dr. Hardin and Professor Sperling will lead us through their presentation and take questions from the audience. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. At the end of this CE activity, participants should be able to, one, recognize the symptoms of epilepsy and be able to list the components required to make an accurate diagnosis. Two, demonstrate improved expertise in the pharmacologic management of patients with epilepsy. Three, translate available guidelines for the treatment of epilepsy into clinical practice. Those applying for nursing credit should be able to, one, recognize the symptoms of epilepsy. Two, identify available guidelines for the treatment of epilepsy. A course guide for this activity, which includes slides, disclosures of faculty financial relationships, and full biographical <coughs> profile, can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 440 or call 877-CME-PROS. To receive CE credit for this activity, you must complete the post-test and evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test. Thanks again for joining us and we hope you enjoy the activity. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Sperling, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Cynthia Hardin for this educational activity on the effective diagnosis and treatment for epilepsy. Uh, this is today's neuroscience CME webcast entitled Epilepsy in the New Millennium, Emerging Treatments and Guidelines for Effective Diagnosis and Management. Uh, while there are many challenges in diagnosing and treating epilepsy today, Dr. Hardin and I are going to focus on three key areas, accurate diagnosis, pharmacological management, and also the available guidelines in the treatment of epilepsy. Our format today is going to be structured as follows. We're going to have two sections, each beginning with a case, and each section ending with a question and answer section. We'll address questions, therefore, at the end during the Q&A session. Uh, since the total program is an hour, that gives us uh, about half an hour for each section, minus its introduction time. Uh, for those of you who are joining us via the Internet, you will see a box at the bottom of the window where you can send us your question or comment. For those of you listening on the telephone, we will take your calls at the end of the session today, and the operator will provide instructions on how to get into the queue when we reach that part of the program. Okay, let's get started then. Uh, Cynthia will, will present the first case. This is Fred, who is an 80-year-old gentleman uh, who uh, comes into your office to see you. Uh, Cynthia, would you like to walk us through this case? Yes. Um, Fred um, has had a history of partial seizures since age 66. His wife describes the seizures as um, him having a behavioral arrest and making some sniffing noises, and he becomes unresponsive for about a minute he interestingly has absolutely no warning and and no memory of the spell at all. Fortunately, he has no history of convulsions, 
and um, he was started on treatment 10 years ago, so that was four years after he began having these spells. Um, and so he took gabapentin um, but had a car accident um, while driving, um, probably due to a seizure, thought to be due to a seizure, four years ago. And then levetiracetam was added to his regimen. He thought that there was some improvement with the addition of levetiracetam, and due to continued seizures, it's been um, increased to a dose of 1,250 milligrams twice a day. And he tolerated it fairly well with uh, some um, sleepiness. Um, on the next slide, his history is as follows. He has mild um, bifrontal atrophy. He had a pacemaker placed five years ago, so we were actually unable to get um, a, an MRI of his brain. His EEG um, was normal, and he seems to have absolutely no risk factors for epilepsy. He has a long list of medications, um, including warfarin, um, simvastatin, niacin. Um, so he has some cardiovascular risk factors as well. And this is not uncommon for someone in this age group. Um, I'm going to go to the next slide here. Um, so what I did for him initially, because there was a, a a hint of a response to the levetiracetam was to increase the levetiracetam to the maximum dose of 1,500 twice a day, but his seizures continued. So we added lamotrigine to his regimen, thinking that this would be a well-tolerated and appropriate drug for partial seizures, but he did not tolerate it very well. He was dizzy, tired, and irritable. Um, I got him up to 75 milligrams twice a day. He absolutely did not tolerate it. The, dose that he tolerated was 25 milligrams twice a day, and his plasma level on this dose was 1.7. So uh, that did not seem to be a uh, uh, therapeutic level, so we stopped it. Then, um, since I promised this family, they were so upset about these continued seizures in this really very vigorous, um, mature man. Um, I, I, I promised them that I would really try to stop the seizures, and so we added lacosamide and slowly increased it. Um, uh, Cynthia, if I can interrupt with a question, why did you choose a newer uh, anti-epileptic drug rather than one of the older ones? Well, um, this was his third medicine, right? He's failed basically three medicines due to um, lack of efficacy or, or uh, intolerance. And uh, the, this medicine seems to have a fairly clean pharmacokinetic profile and lack of drug interactions. Um, it's easy to titrate and in general doesn't have sleepiness or sedation as a side effect. So we thought that we would add it um, at this point rather than wait and try um, some of the other anti-seizure medicines, basically due to the clean clean or cleaner pharmacokinetic profile. Okay, thank you. So perhaps if we can move to the next slide, uh, what we can see is to just, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the uh, distinction between seizures and epilepsy. This has already been a question uh, posed by one of the people online. Uh, about 10% of the population has at least one seizure during his or her lifetime with the greatest risk in the first year of life, and as many of you know, uh, after age 60 to 70, the incidence increases rather substantially as well. Um, the annual incidence in a prospective Icelandic study was about 56.8 per 100,000 people for the first unprovoked seizure. Of that first unprovoked seizure, a little under half, so 23 and a half per 100,000, represented a single unprovoked seizure without further seizures following. Uh, Epilepsy was an, about two-thirds of that group, so 33.3 per 100,000. So the first seizure in the prospective Icelandic study a little more often turned into epilepsy than not. Uh, this differs somewhat from uh, some other studies and in a large meta-analysis performed by Ann Berg of 13 studies, the recurrence risk was a, a little over a third, 36% in prospective studies and 47% in retrospective uh, studies. Uh, so 
certain risk factors will increase or decrease the risk of seizure. So if there is coexisting neurological impairment, uh, abnormal EEG, a seizure, the first seizure occurring only while asleep, for example, that will enhance the chance of additional seizure happening. A clean history exam, EEG and imaging will reduce the chance. The uh, diagnosis is not always simple and, uh, you know, how does one distinguish between what is a seizure and what is not a seizure? Well, the variability of symptoms uh, makes a difference. Seizures should be relatively stereotyped, but the problem, as you know, is that many people with seizures are the worst observers. They're unconscious during them. They may give you a, a clue as to an aura, but you really require a witness. Uh, many patients are unaware of some or even all of their seizures. Uh, odd behaviors, funny, condition, funny twitches and the like, coexisting psychiatric syndromes can all, often make things a bit difficult. Uh, and many conditions can mimic seizures, so that psychogenic seizures and panic attacks, and you see the list on the, on the slide in front of you, cardiogenic invasive vagal syncope, TIAs, migraines, sleep disorders, movement disorders, all of these can lead to fairly stereotyped behaviors, and then one has to really rely on a careful history and whether the history is consistent with a seizure or more consistent with something else. What's the duration? Is it very brief or is it longer, like a migraine? Is it a positive or negative phenomenon? There are a number, a number of phenomena. And again, having a seizure does not necessarily lead to the diagnosis of epilepsy. Uh, the reason to make the diagnosis is mainly because of the therapeutic implications. While the ILAE requires two seizures to establish a diagnosis, this distinction is not always observed in practice if someone has a single seizure but a very high probability of recurrence and the risks of recurrence are significant, uh, and those can be either social risks uh, or medical risks or both, then uh, one might opt to treat even after a single seizure. Uh, this happens more often in adults than in kids. Uh, so the diagnosis ideally really relies on the history. You should not put over-reliance on any imaging test or EEG. Uh, ideally, we have an eyewitness. Uh, however, the reliability of witnesses is not enormously great, and even neurologists can disagree. There was a well-published study back in the 70s where the NIH showed videos of seizures to epilepsy specialists, and there was a very high error rate in that group. In a more recent hospital-based study uh, just published within the past few years, they found that the rate of uh, misdiagnosis in the UK population study was 23% overall, 16% in a hospital-based study. And non-specialists, non-neurologists, had nearly 20% error rate in diagnosis. So even having a doctor or nurse uh, observe a seizure was far from precise with regard to diagnosis. Uh, so what we rely on ultimately is accurate description by witnesses, skilled history, uh, and we don't even know about the reliability of physician history in particular. Ultimately, it requires clinical judgment. If I can have the next slide. Uh, so. What are the clinical criteria we use? We want typically positive phenomena rather than negative phenomena, but the exception, of course, is that aphasia and rarely weakness, that is, as a negative motor phenomenon, can occur as part of a seizure. Uh, typically, there's a relatively abrupt start. You know when it starts. You know when it ends. It doesn't have a gradual insidious onset and a gradual insidious offset in most cases. Uh, and the duration is brief. It's a matter of some seconds to a few minutes. A typical tonic-clonic seizure, on average, has a mean duration of about 60 or 65 seconds. It is extraordinarily rare for a seizure with generalized shaking to last more than several minutes. And that might raise a question of pseudo-seizure, for example. Uh, the behavior should be stereotyped. We look for a postictal state, although patients with syncope can have postictal states. And again, one needs to know the literature well. There are ample descriptions in the literature of characteristic phenomena, and there's no substitute for knowing what seizures sound like and knowing what things that aren't seizures sound like as well. Clearly, if you have risk factors for seizures, uh, that will help you. So if there's been a transient disturbance known to provoke seizures, such as hypoglycemia or acute head trauma, uh, whether it's a more remote brain injury, developmental delay, cognitive impairment, or family history or an abnormal exam, these may all lead you in the direction of seizures. The presence of psychiatric disease might lead you away to a certain extent, but it shouldn't very much because a significant proportion of people with epilepsy may have coexisting psychiatric morbidity. 
uh, and going along with that line, uh, the response to anti-epileptic therapy does not confirm diagnosis. After all, there are clear placebo effects. There are psychotropic effects from these drugs. Uh, some of the drugs used to treat seizures also may block movement disorders or treat certain types of sleep disorders. So uh, one ultimately has to pull everything together for clinical, dis dis uh, clinical judgment. Uh, what might we look for to help distinguish? Well, the event might have features of other conditions, for example, antecedent lightheadedness with pallor and sweating might suggest hypotension or vasovagal attack. Uh, prolonged symptoms with or without headaches for 10 or 20 minutes may suggest migraine. And then stop and start movements, eyes closed. And as you can see, the other things indicated on the slide, uh, antecedent headache especially and eyes being closed are probably the most reliable ones for suggesting psychogenic etiology. Jerking and shaking is not terribly reliable. Hypoxia uh, can easily provoke a seizure. Cardiogenic seizures are, are well-described phenomenon. Um, lastly, you know, is there a clear history of a non-neurological condition that causes paroxysmal symptoms? Uh, does the patient have prior sexual abuse or physical abuse? in the setting of and panic disorder. These may argue for psych psychogenic disturbance. Is there a known cardiac rhythm disturbance? Is it a young person compared to an old person? An old person who passes out, you would first have to think of cardiac causes or, uh, or ischemic causes rather than seizure, I think, although seizures clearly are possible. And then sleep disorders and movement disorders that are known to exist would obviously be at the top of the list as part of your differential diagnosis. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, Cynthia, do you want to review briefly the lab tests that we uh, use during the diagnostic process? Yes, thank you. Um, I think it's interesting to point out that um, we don't use that many lab tests. These um, few bullets here are listed. It's been shown that going on a prolonged and extensive fishing expedition for um, an obscure illness that could cause seizures is usually unrevealing unless there's already a medical history of some systemic illness that could cause uh, seizures such as lupus, for example. So for the usual um, person that we see in the office who um, may be fairly young and not have um, other medical problems, the diagnostic tools um, that are most helpful to us are the EEG, which is a physiologic test, tells us how the brain is working and tells us um, about the presence of activity that could indicate the potential for a seizure disorder or even um, a seizure. Um, we can record rarely in the office, but much more frequently during prolonged EEG telemetry and, and imaging a picture of the brain, the structures of the brain that will give us a clue as to whether there's um, a, a, a place in the brain that could produce seizures, a lesion. So EEG is really our main um, starting point, and we look in the office for interictal spikes. Um, often uh, the first EEG, the routine EEG, at least 50% of the time can be normal, which doesn't disprove the diagnosis of epilepsy. We often perform um, overnight ambulatory EEGs. Basically, the longer you record, the greater the chance of picking up an epileptiform um, abnormality if the patient does have um, epilepsy. And further, uh, recording uh, a segment of sleep will also increase the chance of picking up an epileptiform abnormality. So after a routine EEG, perhaps, perhaps a long uh, overnight EEG, if you're still um, trying to um, prove the diagnosis or get evidence in support of the diagnosis, it should be kept in mind that infrequently, normal people can have um, abnormal EEGs rare um, actual epileptiform spikes. Without a diagnosis of epilepsy, this is thought to occur in less than 1% of people, but you can see this um, in a busy lab. Um, I do like to see my own EEGs in the lab um, just to make sure that I am getting a correct interpretation, at least according to the way I look at EEGs. Um, there can be false negatives and false positives, overreading perhaps of um, benign variants or slowing during hyperventilation. Um, so it should be kept in mind, though, for simple partial seizures, for just um, motor movements, um, 
without loss of awareness. There, the EEG cannot, a surface EEG on the scalp cannot pick this up more than 18 to 20% of the time. So we can't um, put too much uh, weight on a negative EEG in the setting of um, epilepsia partialis continua, for example, our motor phenomena. Um, MEG at this point is not indicated for diagnosis, but has been helpful for epilepsy surgery workups in some cases. And imaging, a brain MRI is really the standard now for evaluation of persons with epilepsy. Um, PET and SPECT scans are used um, more often in epilepsy surgery evaluations to give localizing information, particularly ictal SPECT can be useful. Difficult to perform, but can be useful. Um, routine lab tests um, immediately after a seizure, such as white, an elevated white blood cell count, is supportive of, a, of um, uh, supporting evidence that a seizure has occurred, as well as a serum prolactin, which can be elevated um, after a single seizure that is generalized, that involves, that, that um, propagates through the hypothalamic structure, so uh, a, a complex partial seizure involving the medial temporal areas or a, sec or a secondarily generalized seizure or a primary generalized seizure. Um, this is complicated, though, because elevated prolactin has been seen after syncope. And after multiple seizures, the prolactin may not elevate anymore. It's basically depleted for that, for that period of time. So not as reliable as we would like to think. Um, okay, Michael, I think I... I'm ready to let you take over. Okay, uh, thanks. So anyway, we focused on diagnosis so far, and the key points really is, you know, there's no substitute for experience and judgment. Seizures fit patterns. The diagnosis is pattern recognition. Uh, being a neurologist diagnosing seizures is a lot like a dermatologist diagnosing a skin lesion. You have to, you, you see it, and either you recognize it or you don't, uh, ultimately, and it, it really should fit a pattern. And uh, you have to be prepared to question your diagnosis if, people don't respond to your initial therapy or if uh, you've made a decision and things are not going your way. And the history is really critical. And you know, lastly, the nice discussion about tests, and tests are important, but they really should verify the clinical impression, not provide the diagnosis. Now, let's go back, Cynthia, to Fred uh, and our patient. You chose to use one of the newer medications, leucosamide. So let's maybe talk about what some of these newer medications are and the evidence uh, regarding these agents. And we'll only be discussing really the newer agents. There'll be a list coming up on the computer screen any second now, I hope, uh, listing the old agents. Uh, but uh, we'll really want to focus on the new ones that have just come available in, within the past year or so. So, Cynthia, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. I'm on slide uh, 29 looking at lacosamide with a picture of the molecule there. Um, this medicine is indicated as add-on therapy for partial onset seizures in adults. And just to be aware, it is available also as an IV formulation. Um, and used, it's indicated only just for replacement um, when oral uh, administration is not feasible. So it does not have an indication for um, status epilepticus, for example. Um, next slide. This is conveniently a twice-daily dosed drug. Um, the initial dose should be 50 milligrams twice a day, and then at, uh, after one week, uh, it can be escalated to 100 milligrams twice a day. That is thought to be a therapeutic dose, and based on clinical studies, it, it is um, clinically um, uh, it does produce clinically significant seizure reduction. The maintenance dose is being between 200 and 400 milligrams per day. Um, I generally aim to around 200 as with Fred. Um, the ceiling dose of this drug has been explored. It seems to be around 400. Above that, there's more side effects, but not necessarily more efficacy. Moving on here, oh wait, sorry. Mechan uh, the mechanism is discussed a little bit here in slide 31. It has a unique mechanism. It does act on the sodium channels like many of the medicines we use, but in a different manner. It enhances slow inactivation. So basically what this mechanism does is um, decrease how fast it can be um, depolarized again, uh, the, the channel, that is. So it, it does act on sodium channels, but a different site, a different mechanism, so thought to be novel. Um, 
It's partly metabolized, 40%, by um, 2C19. This is hepatic and possibly extrahepatic as well. Um, not many of the medicines we use, use uh, utilize that pathway, so basically very low risk of pharmacokinetic interactions. It is renally cleared. Um, and the one caution is that there has been um, small dose-related increases in the PR interval in clinical trials of epilepsy patients and also in healthy controls. This has not seemed to be clinically significant, um, but it is a possibility and something to keep in mind if you're also using another drug that could affect the heart conduction system, such as carbamazepine, which is one of the um, medications that we commonly use. So if there's a history of heart um, conduction block, it's prudent to um, get an evaluation before using this drug. This hasn't come up that much for our patients, and Fred actually had a pacemaker, um, but just something to keep in mind with the use of leucosamide. Otherwise, it's been pretty well tolerated. Um, dizziness has been the main side effect. Next slide is uh, regarding rufinamide, another new anti-seizure medicine with a more narrow indication as add-on therapy for seizures associated with Lennox Gastaut for ages four and above. This is a triazole derivative. I'm moving on to slide 33. Again, this is conveniently a twice-day um, dose. Um, and the doses are, um, the dose range of this drug is broad, um, up to from 800 to 3,200 milligrams per day in two divided doses. In our hands, we've had success around 16 to uh, 100 milligrams to 2,000 milligrams for um, these types of seizures and these types of patients. Um, rufinamide um, actually does not have a, a known mechanism of action, but possibly, again, through the sodium channels, um, but really um, not well elucidated. Again, a clean drug um, with no active metabolites, um, and it can, be it can be decreased by inducers. The level can be in decreased by medicines that induce um, uh, metabolism and increased by the inhibitor that we commonly use, which is valproic acid. The usual types of side effects, no warnings um, at this time, um, except for familial short QT syndrome. Um, I'm going to move on to the next slide, Vigabatrin. Um, this medicine you may be familiar with. It's been around for a long time, but just recently approved in the U.S. for two rather narrow indications. One is for um, monotherapy for infantile spasms, um, highly effective for infantile spasms. Um, and the second indication is for add-on therapy, not monotherapy, for adults with refractory complex partial seizures. Um, with the caveat that it should not be used unless the patients have clearly had an inadequate response to several other anti-seizure medicines. And the reason for these cautions regarding um, complex partial seizures and infantile spasms is that there has emerged a risk of peripheral vision loss with this medicine. So therefore, it is not indicated as first-line therapy for complex partial seizures. Um, now I'm on slide 36. Uh, the mechanism of action of vagabatrin is very specific. It's a designer drug that was designed to increase GABA, and it irreversibly inhibits the um, enzyme that metabolizes GABA, GABA-T. And um, so basically, the, med the drug increases CNS levels of GABA. Um, however, this powerful mechanism by which it, it decreases seizures is also the mechanism by which it likely causes um, retinal toxicity. Um, it in the um, nerve fiber layer of the retina, especially peripherally, not in the macular area, but more peripherally, there are um, uh, nerve cells that have very high levels of GABA production. So when this drug, so in the presence of vigabatrin, the levels of GABA are basically toxic and can cause nerve cell loss. Um, it's a subtle um, visual deficit because it is peripheral, um, but it is thought to occur in up to 
or at least 30% of patients. Um, the onset may be early in therapy, and whether it is reversible uh, with stopping the drug is unclear. So this is a risk that um, the patients must be informed of, and that's why it's really um, not used as a first-line drug, although it may have its place for patients with interactable seizures. So uh, slide 37 um, um, elaborates on this further, and um, if you choose to use Vigabitrin, it you must do it through a program called SHARE, um, which is from the company that makes Vigabitrin, and this is so that they can monitor the use of the drug and um, keep track of visual field um, uh, studies in the patients who are using Vigabitrin. So if you use it, you have to um, monitor the patient's visual fields, you have to work in conjunction with an ophthalmologist and uh, provide this information back to the company that makes Vigabitrin as a safety measure. Um, this will also hopefully help us to understand more about this visual loss going forward because still it's not completely understood. Um, slide 38 actually points out um, how you can prescribe this drug. It must be prescribed in the U.S. through this mechanism. Um, the SHARE call center. Um, so in conclusion there on slide 39, I wanted to present these new medicines. I think it's exciting um, and wonderful to have more options to treat our patients medically. Um, overall, I think we're going to help our patients um, and keeping in mind that I presented just some bullet points about these drugs, not the bar charts with you know the the uh, efficacy, because I really believe that um, we start with these with these critical points about safety, tolerability, and use, but how they actually work, how we use them in our patients plays out clinically um, after they're marketed and the clinical trial information is really just a starting point. So. Well, thank you very much. Yes, we've had a couple of questions uh, come over, and we'll take some questions on the Internet and then some by phone as well. A couple of the questions that posed, Cynthia, what are the brand names for the rufinamide and the vigabitrin? Uh, rufinamide is Banzel, and uh, vigabitrin is Sabro. Okay, so people have that. And then another question that has come across uh, uh, is uh, I'll read this out loud. Maybe you can answer it, or I can try to tackle it. If not, if uh, you have a 22-year-old male with a first observed seizure after sleep deprivation, mm -hmm. uh, abnormal EEG, put on kep uh, on levetiracetam, 500 milligrams twice daily. Uh, EEG is abnormal given a diagnosis of juvenile myoclonic epilepsy with no other symptoms. Uh, at what point do you reevaluate the diagnosis? At, at what point do I reevaluate the, the diagnosis? diagnosis yes. Well, I think the diagnosis um, is uh, should be pretty well supported by the the seizure type and the EEG. Um, I I think what I would what I would question in this case, what would probably make me reevaluate the case, would be if the medicine is working, because. Um, Levetiracetam is approved for primary generalized epilepsy, but as an add-on, it's approved for myoclonic seizures as an add for JME for the myoclonic seizures as an add-on, and for primary generalized seizures as an add-on. And um, if the if the question is he's still having seizures and what do I do, I would probably consider um, more of an agent that's uh, approved and maybe actually more efficacious as a single agent for this form of primary generalized epilepsy. Cynthia, do you think, and just another question, that the older drugs were insufficient and that the new, newer medications are, are better, or, or are they simply different? Uh, that's a good question. I don't necessarily 
think that as far as efficacy, the newer drugs are better, but I think they're oftentimes easier to use. They don't have so many drug interactions. And, you know, in this eight day and age when we're treating, um, when everybody takes so many medications um, to maintain their health and we're treating a lot of people in the older age group, I think that's really important. Drugs that do not have interactions um, and the twice a day or, or once a day drugs, the XR formulations, I think, are also an advance. I'm not sure about efficacy. I think the older drugs do work, but they're much more difficult to manage um, regarding um, you know, the, the, the pharmacokinetic problems with phenytoin, for example, which makes it hard to manage, and then the drug interactions. And then I do actually think for tolerability and safety, the newer drugs may um, be uh, overall a step above. I mean, levetiracetam has been used now for 10 years and still no major safety problems unless you unless you get the, the severe irritability or psychiatric issues that um, can lead to unsafe situations. But I think not, maybe not for efficacy, but maybe for ease of use and tolerability, hopefully with the newer generation as they keep emerging, we're getting to um, a, a different level. Not so much with vigabatrin, as I mentioned to you, but... Well, thank you. Well, thank you. I mean, I'll add my comment there that I don't think there's any evidence of improved efficacy, and even for side effects, a lot of the older drugs I think are very well tolerated. Certainly, some of the pharmacokinetic properties, and with regard to protein binding, enzyme induction, or enzyme inhibition, uh, can occasionally pose problems with concomitant medications. And an advantage of some of the newer medicines may be that that's less of an issue. We have a huge number of questions coming in. We will get to more of them at the end. I think what we will do now is move on to the second case, and we'll try to do this a bit more quickly so we have more time for questions. So this is case number two, Nancy, who's a 22-year-old woman. Uh, Nancy developed seizures at the age of 17. The seizures begin with a sense of dizziness, followed by staring with unresponsiveness for a minute or two, and she may have a little lip-smacking and mouth movements during this. Uh, occasionally gets up and walks around. Levetiracetam was first prescribed in doses up to as high as 3,000 milligrams per day without control, at a dose of 1,500 twice a day, and Nancy still had seizures every two or three months. So at the age of 20, finally, her physician prescribed branded topiramate, that is brand Topamax of topiramate, at a dose of 75 milligrams twice per day, and lo and behold, the seizures have stopped. So for two years, she's had no seizures. Uh, a little bit more about Nancy. She uses oral contraceptive medications, a low-dose estrogen progesterone combination pill, and plans to marry in a year and would like to have children not too long after that. She wants a big family, uh, though her husband is a little bit, her husband-to-be is a bit skeptical about that, but he has little say, I think. Uh, she works full-time as a secretary, uh, but now there's a new issue. Generic topiramate is available. And her insurance company has told her now that she can switch to generic and get a three-month supply and pay $20 in a copay, or she can continue taking the branded version that she had been taking it had been seizure-free and pay $180 for a three-month supply. So the uh, cost is substantially higher for her. So really we could pose the question, what should she do? Should she remain on branded agent or be switched to generic? And does switching pose a risk or not? Are there problems? If, can we mitigate risk if there is a risk? And if there's no risk, then it's not an issue. And also, the second question, which we'll answer first, and I'll lead in for Cynthia, is whether she should altogether switch to a different medication in view of her plans to marry and start a family within a few years. What do we know about the teratogenicity of topiramate? And are other medications preferable for Nancy? So, Cynthia, let me ask you to perhaps discuss the risks of antiepileptics during pregnancy in a relatively quick way, addressing Nancy's topiramate and the others. Thank you. I'm on slide 45. I'll go fast. I tend to, to talk too much. So uh, this slide really presents some of the highest level of evidence about the absolute risks of teratogenicity with the older medicines in general, valproate, lamotrigine, um, carbamazepine, phenobarb. Um, the only point I want to make on this slide is that Depakote or Valproate really rises above the other medicines. In from 10.7 to 6.2, the other medicines, carbamazepine, lamotrigine, um, and all of their AEDs combined there, where you see why Wisniewski have a uh, absolute risk of about 3% of birth effects. And similar to actually untreated women, the very top 
um, row there. Phenobarbin, one study, showed an increased risk of birth defects at 6.5%. That's probably all the information we're going to get about phenobarb because it's not widely studied in other registries. The next slide, um, 40, uh, slide 46, I've cited here what we know about the newer medicines, levetiracetam, topiramate, oxcarbazepine. These are not high-level studies, that is, large population um, representative studies, um, so, but this is basically what we have. And with levetiracetam, you can see the risk at, with monotherapy appears to be around 4%, topiramate around 4 to 5%, oxcarbazepine perhaps around 2%. So um, these are not high rates of teratogenesis, and I, it seems as though they may be in general lower than with uh, valproate. Um, so I'm not going to make any more points about that, but you have the data there to peruse. Did you want me to go okay. on to? Yeah, I think if you could uh, talk about the cognitive outcomes in babies, that would be a, a good a good topic to discuss next. Um, and is there, coincidentally, there's a slide about that. <laughs> slide 47. Uh, we do a lot of times focus on the structural uh, um, abnormalities, uh, spina bifida, facial clefts, cardiac uh, malformations, but there's the whole other aspect, which is cognitive outcomes. Um, in cognitive um, outcomes are thought to not necessarily be related to first trimester exposure in utero when the organs are forming. This may be a risk that's due to exposure throughout pregnancy or even perhaps during breastfeeding because our brains are developing all that time and even after birth. So a different sort of risk and very hard to assess because you have, it's not a matter of looking at the child. It's a matter of testing a, a baby after they become testable at age two or three. So very hard studies. But even in, when these studies have been performed, these um, very well-performed studies, difficult studies, have shown the same um, effect that valproate does have the most risk of adverse cognitive outcome. And this is not just statistically uh, a statistical massage. This is actually a rever reduced verbal IQ of about 6 to 10 points below expected. So there is a risk of adverse cognitive outcome with valproate. What do we know about the other medicines here on slide 48? It looks as though carbamazepine does not increase the risk of poor cognitive outcomes in, in the data so far. Um, not so clear that phenytoin and phenobarb don't pose at least some risk, but maybe not as much as valproate. Um, and uh, I'm on slide 49. Um, it, it does appear that polytherapy has, poses more cognitive risk than monotherapy as well. Um, so in conclusion here on slide 50, um, that we advise, at least in the, in the practice parameters that came out last year, to try to avoid valproate during pregnancy if possible. Um, and uh, many people have, have asked, you know, what do we use for primary generalized epilepsies um, in that case? Because carbamazepine looks, looks relatively good, and that's a, a good turn to agent for partial epilepsies. But what about primary generalized? Um, lamotrigine, topiramate, and perhaps levetiracetam. Um, as they emerge may be um, useful. Um, and there is data emerging that polytherapy without the use of valproate, a regimen of polytherapy that does not include valproate, may actually only have a little risk of major um, congenital malformation. So it, as far as polytherapy, valproate may be imparting most of the risks. Um, the best evidence for safety for major malformations and also for cognitive teratogenesis is with carbamazepine and lamotrigine. They appear to be the safest so far. Um, and I'm going to go to the next slide here just to finish up on slide 51. Um, lamotrigine is a, a, appears to be very emerging as a very safe drug for teratogenesis. Uh, the levels may be difficult to manage during pregnancy. We have to stay on top of them because for some women they may decline dramatically. So um, compared to lamotrigine, carbamazepine is relatively easy to manage in general, has little expected change um, in levels. 
So our outlook in general is that seizures are risky and should be avoided. And um, if Valproate must be used, then the risk should be discussed. And um, there still appears to be 90% chance that the babies will be normal. But of course, in this setting, we want to reduce the risk as much as possible. Well, thank you very much, Cynthia. That was a very nice uh, review. Uh, so there are difficult difficult decisions to make when planning uh, pregnancy, and I think uh, careful discussions with family is perhaps the, um, one of them, and the woman who's planning to become pregnant is perhaps the most important thing to do as, as far as and simplifying things. Let's talk about the other aspect in uh, in, in our in our case of our second patient, our, our young woman with. Uh, who's getting married soon and is also being told that the cost of remaining on a branded version of topiramate is considerably higher than switching to generic. So what are the considerations we have? So the FDA requires bioequivalence in order for a generic to be approved, and that's a, actually a tricky thing. I have a graph in the next slide, but, I'm, but I'll show you shortly. But basically it requires that the 90% confidence interval, the geometric mean of the area under the curve, and the maximum concentration of the generic drug must fall between 80 and 125%. So it's not their, their mean concentration, but actually the 90% confidence interval of, of what you get from them. Uh, and I'll show you a slide about that in a moment after a little further discussion, uh, what, uh, what it really means. Uh, the other thing that you have to remember with genetics is, uh, generics rather, is that the way the FDA asks companies to do it, it's actually pretty straightforward and so straightforward that it, the relevance to humans with epilepsy is perhaps a little dubious. They use healthy volunteers who are not on other medications, unlike our patients who are often on multiple medications that might affect metabolism, absorption, and clearance of drugs. It's a single dose in the fasting state and then a single dose in the uh, non-fasting state, in the fed state, and which is with a high-fat meal, uh, which is very different than the steady state that we look for for our patients. Uh, generics can differ in the manufacturing process and the excipients used, so that's the fillers that go, which might affect absorption and, and other matters and disintegration. And the other thing is that for each individual generic, it is compared to the reference brand. So the difference between a single generic and the reference brand is a certain percent. And we can move to the next slide now, please, to show that. But the difference from one generic to the next may be even different. So this is a graphical representation with data drawn from the paper of Bialer. And this slide was actually given to me by Scott Mincer, one of my colleagues. And what it shows is that that 90% confidence interval is broader so that the mean of the generic is actually a lot less different from the mean of the branded preparation than it might sound. It's not necessarily 80 to 125%. However, from one generic to the next, you might have a significant swing. So what they found in some studies is that the swing may be as much as 5 or 7% from generic to reference, which means the swing between generics can be as high as 14%. For example, on 1,000 milligrams of levetiracetam per day, if it's 7% higher, what you may see is uh, a, a dose then of 1,070 from one generic, for example, at the mean, 7% lower might then be 930. That's not an inconsiderable difference. How important it is, is hard to say. So what are the implications when we switch? Uh, and the implications are listed there. Manufacturers don't demonstrate equivalence in side effects or efficacy, simply that the concentration is relatively close. If you have a compound with a broad therapeutic range, uh, that's not an issue if there's a narrow therapeutic range, and phenytoin is probably the one that's most careful, that would make a difference there. Uh, psychological issues may matter too. Some patients may have anxiety and report side effects. Uh, the safety issues are as, as listed. There may be fluctuations that can lead to breakthrough seizures. That's a concern with risk of injury. And people who are near the upper limit, uh, if their dose is the same but the concentration is a little higher, may then develop a little bit more in the way of side effects. And then there are legal issues also. The alteration in dose from a generic, if it leads to a seizure, may then lead to loss of driving privileges. How much branded fluctuate, though, is not fully known, and that's an important consideration. Uh, now, as far as the Canadian, there was a Canadian study as to what happened with the pyruvate substitution. It was very interesting. What they found was that the switch to cheaper generic was actually vastly more expensive. This is a paper published in Neurology. So that multiple generic use was, used, was associated with higher hospitalization rates, uh, the incidence of seizures was higher, longer hospitalization stays as well. Uh, when you were switched to a single generic, the risk was actually 
a little bit higher, but not very different from the branded preparation. So the consideration from this study would be that if someone is switched to generic, the cost may be a tiny bit higher, but it's not clear that there was a saving. And if they're switched to multiple generics, actually the cost ratio was substantially higher. You can see that the multiple generic was a cost ratio of 1.2, so 20% higher. So really there weren't much in the way of savings. The other study out of Canada was after generic lamotrigine came available. And I have two slides on this to get through this quickly, so we have plenty of time for questions. What they found in this study was very interesting. The four bars on the left are for anti-epileptic drugs available in Canada. Carbamazepine, Clobazam, which is not yet available in the U.S., but we hope will be soon, gabapentin and lamotrigine. And you can see the switchback rate. That is a measure of patient confidence in what they're doing, their side effects or seizure control, uh, but probably psychological factors or significance, is high. And that is that a substantial, as much as 40 over 40% of Clobazam, and clearly more than 20 to 30% of the other drugs, patients went back to the brand. They perceived the problem. And this is in marked contrast to some non-antiepileptic drugs. So we have anti-hypertensives on the right in the three, and also simvastatin, a, a lipid-lowering agent. And you could see the switchback was much lower. So this reflects perhaps side effect profiles, perhaps it reflects seizures, and perhaps it reflects psychological and we don't really know the answer to that, but it, it, it raises a question that I think we have to think about. The next slide also shows some cost effect by switching to the uh, cheaper drug. So generic use was associated with an increase in dose. People were checking levels and winding up raising doses. A higher number of dispensations for other drugs. So people wound up being switched to other medications or taking other drugs more often and, and also getting other non-antiepileptics. There was a higher rate. Uh, there was a higher utilization rate of medical service. You can see 8.7 versus 9.8 visits per person year. And again, like the topiramate study, more days in the hospital on average. So are generics cheaper to the health system? And you know, at least from the Canadian perspective, the answer so far seems to be no. Uh, it doesn't help our patient who is being forced to do something or else being forced to pay a lot of money. So what do we do? What's a recommendation that we can make? And you know, these are a couple thoughts that I had. These are my personal recommendations. But in initiating therapy, you could consider, I think, treatment with generic. It's a reasonable thing to do, and you don't have to worry about that variability. At the other end, if the patients are completely seizure-free, you might want to think about avoiding generic substitution unless your back is to the wall, because you may only make things worse. There's really not an upside unless the cost uh, becomes uh, prohibitive for patients. And then in between, the patients who are not doing so well on the brand, you could argue, well, they could not do so well on, on generic and uh, perhaps save some money. Although, again, from the health system perspective and the patient perspective, if it leads to increased hospitalizations and increased costs, that is potentially a problem. Well, I think we'll wrap up that formal discussion and take, we have now time for talks. We have about seven minutes left uh, for questions. Uh, Tasha, are there any questions on the phone that we should take first? Yes, I'd like to give everyone a reminder once again. Please press star 1 to ask a phone question. Our first question will come from Lynn Hallastri. Please go ahead. Thank you. Um, question about the use of Keppra prophylactically for people who have suffered head injuries um, and the doctor prescribes Keppra to prevent seizures. Is there any validity to that? Uh, Cynthia, would you like to take that or have me do it? Uh, why don't you try that one? Okay. It comes <laughs> up a lot. I work in a busy neurosurgical center. The good data really exists uh, for phenytoin, a study done by Nancy Temkin at University of Washington back in the 90s, uh, showing that the incidence of seizures in the first week after head trauma was lowered if patients were given prophylactic anticonvulsant medication. Uh, beyond a week, there was no benefit, and uh, it was thought then to be beneficial because if there's increased intracranial pressure, perhaps you can uh, eliminate that. Uh, so long-term prophylaxis, no. Short-term, if there's significant head trauma, there may be benefit. It's also done in patients with, uh, hyper, with, with hemorrhages as well, uh, without independent hemorrhage data extrapolating from the head trauma data. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, one other phone question. And we'll take our next question from Murtada Al-Marashi. Please go ahead. How do you get CME for the course? Credit, CME credit. I'm sorry, what is your question? How, how do you get CME credit? How do you get CME credit? Yeah. Um, 
there is uh, that's a very good you know something I we, we Cynthia and I are all set for the epilepsy there's a way of doing it uh, on the website there is a way of figuring it out and uh, we will make sure that that is obvious and, and probe because you can certainly get uh, CME there I think you have to log into the neurosciencecme.com website and then you can get the CME credit for that and I think that should be showing up on your you. slide on your slide thank you very okay. much sure. That was the hardest question to answer of all for me. Uh, let me. We have a couple of online questions too. Let's uh, let's uh, put a couple of those up. Um, so here's a question that's been put: Do you ever use Vimpat, which is lecosamide off-label as monotherapy? Uh, and uh, is there evidence for this yet? Uh, do you want to address that, Cynthia? Um, yes, I have not used it um, as monotherapy as yet. Um, I you know this is that's definitely off label it's probably something that will happen at some point after um you know patients add it on and then uh, it it's working well and then there's a desire to withdraw the background drugs so I off label I'm sure it's going to happen um but I haven't used it in that manner yet okay. um I I can add in I actually have in the off label fashion I participated in the investigational trials and a number probably have half a dozen or so people who were, had it adjunctively that we then converted to monotherapy. There is also a monotherapy trial underway at present. Uh, thus far, there is no scientific, you know, randomized controlled data showing that it is efficacious. If it behaves like other anti-epileptics, though, we would have every reason to believe that the studies would prove to show efficacy. Uh, here's another uh, question that's been put. Uh, so, uh, you know, in Nancy's case, should she stay on the brand name or switch to generic? Uh, what would you do? So, Cynthia, I'll ask you: Should she stay on the brand name? Should she stay to switch to generic? Or this woman who's 22 years old and been seizure-free for two years, uh, would you still switch her to a different drug because she's going to get pregnant within the next few years? How would you handle Nancy? Um, I uh, probably would not change her. Um, this, this is my personal opinion. If she's seizure-free um, and the rates of teratogenesis are, don't appear to be that high as yet um, in the clinical studies, so um, I, prob I, you know, she's not. I'm not. A, she's not in front of me. I don't know her well, but superficially, I'm not inclined to change people when they're doing well. If she was on Depakote, I probably would change her. And um, let me look at her dose. She's a, she's on 150 milligrams per day. Um, I, for me, another factor is the dose. If someone is on a very high dose or, high, or at the higher end of the dosing um, scale, um, I might be more inclined to switch to, to permit them to switch to generic if they want to because it gives you just a little more room as far as remaining in the therapeutic um, level range. She's kind of marginal. So, you know, I would probably, in this case, I mean, this, you can see how individualized these decisions are. I would probably try to keep her on the branded because she wants to get pregnant. You want her on the lowest dose. Um, and... Uh, you you know I have decided to continue her on this drug, but I don't want to risk much of a decline by switching her to generic because she's already not on that much. So in this particular case, I would probably keep her on the brand. Okay, so that's my train of thought. Thank you. Could you comment one last thing? I think you've got 30 seconds uh, mm -hmm. to comment on the efficacy of zanisamide for generalized tonic-clonic seizures and the risks of medication for of that medication for women who may want to become pregnant. Um, I think zonisamide has been shown to be one of our most effective drugs for primary generalized epilepsy, and there's not enough information at all about the risk of teratogenesis. There were only a few. The little information we have is from Japan, and it appears to be a low rate, but we don't have enough information. We're probably going to get a lot more from the international pregnancy registries in the next year or so. I have had many patients deliver normal babies with taking zonisamide during pregnancy, and I monitor the levels and I increase the dose to maintain a, the pre conceptual level. Thank you. Uh, another question has been uh, asked, which we probably only have a few seconds for, uh, about uh, what to do with uh, 
drugs targeted to certain regions of the brain and on the surgical front, and I can comment that there will be some studies uh, coming underway. It's still investigational in animals right now to do very local, uh, very local delivery of of these uh, drugs uh, surgically, but it's still quite in the investigational. Actually, I'm told we have a couple more minutes. I thought we were a little be uh, thought we were a little ahead of where we are. Are there any more telephone questions? And we do have a question. We'll take our next question from Rafael Bocha. Please go ahead. Yeah, I'm on the teleconference, and I never got the booklet, neither the forms to fill out for CME credits. Do you happen to know the phone number that I can call uh, to get that? Um, I will get that as soon as they tell me. I don't have the phone number. I just have the website, which is the neurosciencecme.com, www.neurosciencecme.com. That's all I have. Uh, There is a number here now, 877-CME-PROS, C-M-E-P-R-O-S, which I guess is a phone number you can use too. Appreciate that. Okay, sure. Um, And then another question online uh, would be, is there any protocol uh, for people who are coming back with traumatic brain injury for soldiers and uh, with symptoms that uh, may, who may develop epilepsy from a prophylactic point of view? Cynthia, would you like to address that? Um, as far as I know, there are there are no published trials on that. There has been um, some uh, exploration as to whether Keppra might be a useful medication in preventing epilepsy, um, but there are many, many um, grants available out there for the Department of Defense, and hopefully this is an active area of research. Maybe okay. you know more than I do about this. Okay, no, nothing more. Well, thank. I want to thank everyone for their participation. Thank Cynthia. This. You were terrific. I appreciate it. And I think this program has now ended. So thank you very much. I'm sorry we couldn't get to more questions. Goodbye.